When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ahoy Mets fans, welcome to episode 249 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. <sighs> My name is Brian Salvatore, and as always, Sandy Alderson has waited just until me and Chris were done talking to make a trade. So as you know by the time you're listening to this, but as Chris and I do not know by the time of our conversation, Jay Bruce has been traded to the Rays. Not the Rays, I'm sorry, the Indians. I'm getting my Lucas Duda and Jay Bruce trades confused. Silly Brian. Uh, anyway, though, our pal Steve Saipa did a little bit of homework on the prospect the Mets got back for uh, Jay Bruce. And he recorded a little segment just uh, for this. So thank you, Steve. We appreciate it. Chris and I will be back with our thoughts on this trade and much more next week. But first, here is Steve Saipa, and then follow Following that will be uh, Chris's conversation with Matthew Cerrone of Mets Blog and an author. Uh, he'll be talking about his new book. And then Chris and I will be back to talk about uh, the most important thing to happen this week, the uh, the Mets uniform uh, numbers, the, uh, the nicknames in the back of the uniforms this weekend. We have lots of thoughts. Uh, and then there'll be some more good stuff. I don't know why I'm giving you a preamble to the show. I never really do this, but, uh, you know, why not? So, uh, yeah, enjoy. Hey everyone, this is Steve Saipa again, and I have some not-so-breaking news to discuss. The Mets can add yet another minor reliever to their ranks, as Jay Bruce was traded to the Cleveland Indians in exchange for a right-handed reliever, Ryder Ryan. So, who is this very elitive pitcher, right-handed reliever, Ryder Ryan? Well, for one thing, he's a guy that has a lot of baseball in his blood. His father, Sean, was drafted by the Phillies in the 30th round of the 1990 draft, and he made it all the way to AAA. His uncle, Jason, was drafted by the Cubs in the ninth round of the 1994 draft, and he actually made it to the major leagues. And his great-uncle or grandfather or great-great-uncle or great-grandfather, I don't know, I'm not really fully sure how the link would be, but that individual was Ed Majeski, and he was a catcher that played for a couple of teams back in the 30s. So, back in high school, Ryan was scouted by a bunch of teams, and he was eventually drafted by the Indians in the 40th round of the 2014 draft. He put up pretty decent numbers in high school. He didn't sign with Cleveland, and he went to the University of North Carolina instead. And in the two years that he was there, he didn't play very much. Uh, He actually left the team halfway through the 2016 season. But um, when he did play, it was not at pitcher. He was... Mostly a third baseman, and he played a smattering of catcher. Uh, 
So, uh, in 2016, the Indians drafted him again, this time in the 30th round, and this time he signed. And what's noteworthy about that is that the Cleveland Indians drafted him as a pitcher, and as soon as he signed and was ready to start playing, they began converting him back to being a pitcher. Um, He stopped pitching in college because his mechanics were kind of piecemeal and his control was not good at all. Uh, He had a strong arm and the makings of a slider, but other than that, he was as crude as crude could be. And so far, the Indians' project has gone decently. Uh, He still doesn't really have that many innings under his belt, but his control is better. It can still use some work, but it's improved. And what initially gave the Indians interest in him and what kept their interest um, a couple of years later when they redrafted him was the power of his arm. And he does have a decent arm. His fastball has above average velocity. It sits in the mid-90s. And he can elevate the pitch and change the batter's plane, but it doesn't really have that much horizontal movement. His slider, um, it sits in the mid-80s. That's his go-to secondary pitch. And it flashes average though right now it's a little less refined. And rounding out his pitching repertoire is a change-up that he has a feel to, but it's still below average pitch right now. So last night in the comments section of the initial uh, post about Bruce being traded, I was thinking about a player that I could compare to Bruce to highlight just how much the market for outfielders has kind of crashed. And the last big slugger that I was able to think of off the top of my head was Ioannis Cespedes. So I looked at his stats and I compared them to Bruce. And they actually meshed pretty well. In 2015, Cespedes hit 293, 323, 506 in 102 games with the Detroit Tigers. This season, Bruce hit 258, 324, 524 in 102 games with the Mets. So Cespedes had a better average. Bruce had about 10 more homers than Cespedes did, but... It translated. It all translated to a 123 WRC plus for Cespedes and a 121 WRC plus for Bruce. So basically, it all comes out to a wash, and they basically had about the same amounts of production in the same amount of games. So Cespedes back in 2015 was traded for Michael Fulmer and Luis Sessa. Fulmer was generally regarded as a mid to back end starter, but there were still questions about his endurance and overall ability to stay healthy, and a lot of people that, you know, a lot of people thought he'd end up in the bullpen instead. And since then, he's won Rookie of the Year, and he was an All-Star this year. Sessa, who's on the Yankees now, he's regarded as a fringe middle relief arm that would kind of rack up airline miles to and from the AAA affiliate and the MLB team, and he's pretty much been just that, you know, though you could say maybe he's pitched a little better than expected since he has a 99 ERA plus over last season and this season combined, which basically comes out to MLB average. The Mets, on the other hand, got Ryder Ryan. So, you know, yes, Cespedes is a much better defensive outfielder than Bruce. He was a year younger, and I guess he was generally regarded as a better, you know, overall athlete and player. But, you know, man, talk about uh, incongruous returns. That would basically be like if the Mets were able to acquire Cespedes for, like, Joseph Zangi or something like that, you know, a kind of middle relief arm down in the low minors that only really the most dedicated people that follow the minor leagues are really aware of. Uh, if only if if only the Mets were doing a better job at drafting and developing their own relievers, then 
acquiring these kinds of guys from outside sources would not be such a pressing need, apparently. But, oh well, oh well. LOL Mets, that's what it all comes down to, I guess. Well, I will be back once again next week, and I'm sure there'll be some more trades to discuss. Joining us this week on Amazing Avenue Audio, uh, you know him as the creator, lead writer of Mets Blog. Uh, he wears several other hats these days, and he, <laughs> he recently wrote a book. Uh, Matthew Cerrone, thanks for coming on. You got it, Chris. Thanks for having me on. Uh, and the book is The New York Mets Fans Bucket List, which came out earlier this year. Uh, it's been a bit of a busy summer for me, as you know, those of you who are listening to the podcast uh, on a regular basis, but... Finally got around to getting back to doing some interviews, so Matt, uh, I'm glad to have you for the first one in a while. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad to be here. It's uh, always fun to sort of dip my toe in the Amazing Avenue <laughs> waters, uh, which is great. <laughs> I mean, I, I love it. You know, I've been a fan of the site forever, and like, it's just, it's, I'm, I'm happy to uh, be here, so thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I guess I'll start with the thing that I tend to ask everyone who has a book uh how did it come about you know when when did you have the idea to put this together and and how did it actually get turned into the physical book that i have in front of me sure well i you know i've been pitched a lot of different things over the years and never really felt right about writing stuff because it's you know i mean I, I spend so much time writing about the mets every day that you know doing something in my odd hours you know even more so just it, it, it had to be the right fit and it just never I never could find it and then Triumph uh contacted a literary agent who then approached me about doing this which I guess they were doing a series of books that uh are along the same lines so you know there's a Yankee one there's a Red Sox one etc cetera, etc cetera. and I think they were most looking for beat writers but in this case I think they thought for the Mets it made sense to to have me do it just to have someone that you know, sort of had their, uh, you know, had sort of, you know, swam in all the different waters, you know, so like, I, I get the media, I understand the fans, I, I, you know, I have connections with the team, I work with the network, you know, there's all these different uh, angles that I can sort of come at it from. And, you know, for the Mets, which, as you know, <laughs> it's a pretty, uh, you know, tumultuous, dramatic, very in-depth uh, experience being a Mets fan, uh, it seemed like a good fit. And, you know, when I saw the books, I saw some of the other ones, I realized this was sort of short form little, you know, essays, you know, 800,000 words on on a variety of different topics. So for me, that was perfect, right? Like, that's my writing style. And on top of that, it's stuff that I don't typically get to write about on the blog, which is, you know, news and rumors, like this stuff was going to be more historical and different experiences growing up as a Mets fan. And, I took it as a, a project to sort of, you know, try and capture what it is to be a Mets fan and, and all of its glory and all of its, uh, you know, t- you know, tears and pain and hysterics and agony and, you know, and fun and everything that goes into it. And so I, I think I was able to pull that off to some extent. And uh, yeah, that was sort of why I accepted it. And I thought it was pretty good. I, I was happy with the way it came out. Nice. Uh, yeah, no, it's if you haven't picked it up yet or looked at it uh, the basic format, you know, there's, there's sections with like major topics of things to do, things to see, things to listen to, uh, and then there's a bucket rating 
Excuse my smoke alarm yeah, in the say, back. It sounds, it sounds like you need to change the batteries on your smoke alarm. Button. Yeah, no, no, no. It's it is going off, but uh, my wife's in the kitchen and it's um, someone's burning bacon. Yeah, uh, that is exactly what it is. <laughs> bacon great. for the turkey burgers. We're going to eat in a little while here. Nice, nice. Yeah, we have various background noises on this right. podcast, so this Car- this carry works. On. I'm used to it. No worries. <laughs> um. But yeah, so the basic format, you know, uh, you, you go through a bunch of different things. There's there's a bucket rating, uh, anywhere from one to five buckets. Uh, you know, each topic has some that are high priority, some that are maybe a little lower. Uh, a couple that stood out to me, you know, the the City Field Tour you had uh, rated yes. very highly, and Spring Training uh, you had uh, at the highest rating. So I figured I'd just ask. I've actually never done a proper city field tour. You know, I've I've been fortunate to have the occasional access through the Mets and through the site, especially when Shannon Ford was you know doing blog nights yep. on a regular yep. basis and everything. Um, so I was just curious. You know, you've had all this access. So when did you do the city field tour, and what was it? You know, that that stood out as something that was like that that good sure. to do well for for you and i would probably be wasted on us just a little bit because we've had the the privilege of being able to sort of access a lot of those different things and, and see you know those that stuff sort of in a professional environment for people who haven't it's actually pretty cool and the way they structure the tour and i kind of detail it in the book you know they take you really through it exactly how you kind of want to see it and you know you just it's it's i think what strikes me is so, well, just to answer your first question, the first time I did it actually was when it was under construction, which was pretty wild. Um, and then a few years later, I went just, you know, just without anybody knowing. I just went with a bunch of fans before a game since I wanted to see how they structured it. And it's really what always strikes me is just sort of getting to see the power and the size and everything and just sort of the business of baseball and the structure and all the things that kind of go into the ballpark and just getting to see the clubhouse and you know the first time you see the carpeting and you realize you know it's the the neon silhouettes from from the old Shea Stadium is you know part of the carpeting and you know all these little things you know just the amount of wires and all the stuff that just goes (laughs) on in that place it's just really remarkable and you know I just think it's a pretty awesome experience getting to see the bullpens and be in the dugout and step on the grass and like just see all these different things and, and kind of experiencing it firsthand I think is, you know, something that every fan should do. And then spring training is just, you know, you've been down there. We've, we've you know, seen each other down there a few times. And it's, you know, if, if it's, it's something that every fan should do, especially if you have kids. I mean, if you have kids and you're trying to introduce them to the game, there is no better way to do it than to go down there and, and you know, that weather, that time of year and, you know, have that sort of, you know, just be able to kind of have this low risk, no uh, consequence experience of watching baseball and that's the thing it's about skill and it's about warm weather and autographs and just sort of having fun and if you're a kid that's really all you want and as adult as an adult it's a nice reminder of what the game is about and just to me spring training is the best yeah and it's i mean of course it's a break from winter depending on when exactly you go uh you know it's a lot nicer in florida in february and march than it is here (laughs) usually Uh, (laughs) yeah for but um you know uh, it's funny. I had never gone myself until uh, Rob Castellano used to go for Amazing Avenue, and he got to a point that he, you know, life sure uh, intervenes, right? <laughs> it, it did, and he, you know, he stopped uh, going down, and and his era at the site came to an end. <clears throat> so I came down for the first time because of that, and you know, it's funny. I'd never really had 
a burning desire to go. And then it became this thing of like, oh, I need to do this every year. Um, sure. And, you know, not everybody's Curtis Granderson or Brandon Nimmo, but I'd say the overall tone of it is very relaxed, uh, you know, on the backfields, you know, workouts, autographs, just chatting with a player, even for 30 sure. seconds, uh, it, you know, as a fan. Uh, it, it's, I don't know, it's a pretty cool thing, and it's something well, that I'm glad know, that I've gotten to do a few times. Sure, and the, the other thing I think for us, for Mets fans, it, who, you know, listen, we, we we wear it on our sleeves. It's, it's as I think it was Bobby Valentine that said, it's 162, you know, one-game seasons. Like, it's, it's, it is a lot. It's a lot. We live and die it. It's, it's pretty crazy. And so when you go down there in spring training, I think the, the, the real thing that I always sort of enjoy, again, like I said before, is the lack of consequence. It's just that you're just down there enjoying baseball, enjoying the team. Like there's there's hope and optimism in the air. Like you can't help but sort of get wrapped up in the tide and the bubble of that. Hey, we're going to, you know, do Bob X, Y, Z this year and everything's great. And because it can be, you know, there, nothing's happened yet. So like. That is sort of fun to experience in and of itself because you, you you know as well as I do and anybody listening to this that the minute the bell rings, all that goes away and it becomes, you know, just chaos and drama and hopefully excitement. But nine times out of ten, it's a lot of insanity. And, you know, that isn't so much the case in spring training. And so it's just kind of a breath of fresh air to get to experience not having that other, you know, craziness. Right. And yeah, I'd say the only spring training that maybe had a different feel was coming off the the pennant. Yeah, you know, sure, sure. Where there was sure. just this a different sense of accomplishment and everything. But otherwise, it seemed pretty consistent over the times yeah. that I've been down there where, you know, it, you can romanticize it a little bit. And of course, the, the Mets, even over the two seasons that have preceded this one that have been successful, uh, they didn't go in like the Cubs being heavy favorites or anything. You know, there, there was there's some sense of uncertainty and and all that. And I don't know. I, I, I it's kind of enjoyable to just we sound be there. Uh, we sound like <laughs> the spokespeople for the uh, St. Lucie Tourism Board. <laughs> <laughs> we but do. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's fun. It's good time. So yeah, I've heard a couple of people in the stands in the, in the ballpark. You know, bemoaning whatever the result is in front of them, and I just turn yeah, to whoever yeah. I'm next to, like <laughs> that's not the point. Right, exactly. Um, and, and now we've got some fire trucks oh, I going really by. I really hope that is not fire trucks coming to your house. No, no. Oh, it, okay. it, that is the, the, the sequencing <laughs> here is perfect. Yeah, really. Oh, boy. I don't okay. think they're coming here. <laughs> um, it's a lot to go through for bacon, i got to tell you. It, it is. But, uh, oh, man, uh, this is too good. But, <laughs> but, yeah, shifting, I guess, back to... Um, you know the other, to, hot, the, the other hot mess that we <laughs> <laughs> yeah so obviously this year hasn't gone how either of us or anyone listening had hoped uh unless we have some listeners who are you know division rival fans uh but you know what is it i know the the obvious answer is probably just Ahmed rosario and, and the starting pitchers but you know I think we're in a boat where we have to pay attention. And I don't know if I would completely tune out if I didn't have to. But I think, you know, there's a little bit of a difference when you, there's this day-to-day of it. What stuff are you looking forward to over the last, you know, seven, seven and a half weeks of the season that we have here? Uh, yeah, it's yeah. I mean, for me, that's easy to answer because I, and I, I've written about this a few times. I've talked about this on other, other interviews. I, I always look at the baseball season sort of as a story. Um, and in particular, the the sort of the the tenure of the 
um, you know, the, the administration, so to speak. So like, you know, the Sandy Alderson era is, is sort of its own little narrative. And so like, this is a pretty pivotal moment. Like this is the beginning, I think of act three, I hope. And, uh, where there's a little bit of an upswing where like we had our little drama here at the, you know, right at this point. And so now we're going to sort of have an uptick, I hope. Um, and we'll see. And so like, that's kind of always how I watch, watch sports in general, but baseball in particular, just cause it's such a long uh, season. There's so much that goes on. And so, you know, for me, it's, I want to see what happens here. I want to see how they go about this. Like, this is a pretty pivotal time. His contract's up. Terry Collins' contract is up. They're bringing up Rosario. Assumably, they're going to they're gonna bring up uh, Dom Smith soon. Um, you know, if they get some of these pitchers back, we're going to get to see, you know, kind of what, what they've got in the tank before, you know, the offseason. Going to get a look here at Jay Bruce a little bit at first base and just kind of get an idea of what they're working with so that when the offseason comes – you know, they can sort of make the appropriate moves to try and hopefully spend some of this uh, money they have coming off the books, which, you know, could be upwards of 70, 80 million dollars, depending on, on what it is. And, you know, try and get back uh, things back in order. I mean, it, the fact is they still have really good pitching and, you know, Familia is still a really good closer and Conforto looks like he's going to be awesome, like a lot of us thought he would be. Uh, you know, and so hopefully they'll have a better read on, on Smith and, and Ahmed and then we'll, you know, kind of go from there. Um, and so to me, you know, that's what you're watching. You know, you're watching to kind of get an idea of what this offseason is going to be about. I mean, you know, like as Mets fans, the offseason is, is pretty much as big as the regular season sometimes, right. like oh, going yeah. through all the hot stuff stuff. So like, you know, I, I want to this is a preview in a way of just kind of what, what are we working with, you know? Um, and so that's kind of what I'm looking for. And I think they're in pretty decent position. I mean, it'd be a lot worse if they didn't have have that budget. Um, and have that money to spend. I think that that sort of opens things up. I don't know that I'm a huge fan of a lot of the players that are available, but um, you know, there, there's options there and there's ways to kind of go about things. And I think they'll be fine. I think come next spring, we'll be talking pretty similarly as we were a year ago, um, you know, in terms of expectations for next year as they were for this year. So, you know, that's all I can hope for. And I think they'll be, I think they'll be okay. It just, it's going to be, I think the manager stuff is actually going to be the bigger deal. Um, cause I, I have really no idea how that's going to go down. The player stuff, I think will take care of itself, but the manager is going to be an interesting one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, depending on what Terry Collins wants to do himself, what Sandy Alderson mm-hmm. wants to do with that, assuming that the Mets keep him around to run things, which, sure. you know, sounds like it'll be the case, but it's not official yet. Um, nope. but yeah, that, that's, I'm, I'm with you, you know, uh, it's, it, it sucks to be thinking about off-season things in August after the last two years, but I guess yeah, it's... Yeah, but we're used to it, right? Yeah. <laughs> so That's true. I feel like in July 2015, we were thinking off-season things yeah, uh, really. as a collective we, you know, Mets fans, yeah. in, in the middle of July, and then things turned around really sure. quickly. <laughs> well, that's um, the thing. You know You know that's what's going to happen. Like, I don't have a doubt in my mind that they're going to play like really well in September and just completely mess with everybody's heads. Like. You know, they're going to give Sandy or give uh, Terry Collins second thoughts about retiring. Like, he's going to think, well, you know, they played well for me and, like, this was fun and maybe I got another year in me. And they're going to, get, they're going to see stuff out of guys, I bet, that, like, they weren't expecting. And then that's going to, I just, and I hope it doesn't mess with sort of maybe the right way um, just because they were sort of teased. And, like, I, I don't know. That's just, I, because that's just always the way it goes. Like, it's, it's never just a clear path to the next season there's always some sort of hiccup and i just have this feeling like success oddly enough is going to be a hiccup that's just my hunch yeah hey 
Let's hope. <laughs> yeah, but, well, I mean, I guess it depends on what you're rooting for, right? But right. Well, uh, <laughs> I don't know. We'll we'll see. Uh, we'll see how things go. But um, I did have one other thing specific yeah. with the book. Uh, oh yeah, sure. Go. The you know two of the things you, you mentioned are uh, Bob Murphy and Kiner's Corner. Um, is there a, is there a secret archive somewhere at SMY where, where where we can access more? I know Ted Berg has you know written at length about how awesome yeah. Ralph Kiner is and how little there is. But uh, any recommendations for folks who who you know maybe have read the book or are going to read it? The no, best you know, places to consume oh, that yeah, stuff. Course. No, the Kiner's Corner stuff is fascinating because we when I was at us when I was with SMY I was up, I was with Ted we we they stumbled upon some archives and for the most part and it's funny we just sort of take this stuff for granted these days. But back then they recorded over stuff because, you know, film was expensive. So, like, they'd shoot those episodes and they'd just tape right over it because, like, they didn't have the storage and the archival abilities. And, and so, like, a lot of those episodes just went away. Right. Yeah, um, you could fit so the entirety stuff, of it in your pocket right. now. Now, you know, <laughs> but, like, so there's a lot of stuff that just is gone. And so they put a call out on, um, you know, on, on the Internet to get people to submit stuff if anybody had anything on VHS, you know, all kinds of stuff. And they collected a whole bunch of things and they – I think SMY put together some episodes, and then I know on, on digital we did some stuff, which Ted hosted, which was fantastic, where they went out to Ralph's house and, you know, basically recreated Kinder's Corner, but essentially watching his highlights and talking about some of the interviews. And Ted did, as always, did an, an awesome job. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that stuff is great. And, like, I write about Ralph in the book. Like, there was so much that I didn't even realize, just sort of really how innovative and how intelligent and how um, – you know, thoughtful he was in terms of how they went about that show and what it meant in terms of the legacy of sports media, frankly, or baseball coverage. And it was really, really great. And to have that be part of our experience uh, as Mets fans is terrific. And then, you know, obviously, Bob, I mean, you know, for I think I'm not unique in saying that he was sort of the the narrator of my childhood in terms of listening uh, to Mets games, you know, in bed at night when I should have been sleeping and you're listening on the alarm clock radio and like, <laughs> You know, all that stuff is just great. And like, you know, leaving Shea Stadium and, you know, you've got, you know, the post game playing in the car and it's just all that kind of stuff where, where Bob Murphy really was just a part of it. Um, you know, the two of them and, and quite frankly, Tim McCarver, too, uh, to an extent, you know, just sort of teaching the game uh, as kids, you know, listening to them and, and learning about the game and just sort of, you know, having them capture that experience is, you know, something I'll never forget. And so, yeah, I mean, I write about that at length in the book. Um, cause that to me is huge. I mean, that's a big part of, especially for me, I mean, I'm 41, you know, if you're of, you know, my age and this generation, like those guys were enormous, you know, they were just such a huge part of becoming Mets fans. Like they made it romantic and made it fun and tolerable to an extent, um, in years where maybe it shouldn't have been, um, you know, and so I'm thankful for that. Oh yeah. And, and, you know, we've been so lucky with broadcasters. Um, oh yeah, that it's, you know, the Mets haven't always been the best at everything, but that is one thing that they have consistently gotten very, very right. <laughs> that is true. Um, and blending two of the things, one one other recommendation, I don't want to give away all of them from the book, but one other recommendation was, uh, you know, see, see a Mets road game. Uh, yeah. And one thing, you know, <clears throat> I, I finally made it out to PNC this year for the first time, and uh, we had talked about it, uh, Brian Salvatore and I, on, on the episode after I got back, and you know, just blown away by everything. But I don't remember if I mentioned it at the time, uh, and I, I don't recall if, if you mentioned it specifically, but if you do go see a Mets road game at PNC Park, uh, there's a little statue of Ralph Kiner's hands and his bat, yeah. which is sort yeah. of a unique statue, but it's 
it's not hidden, but it's kind of tucked away behind the wall in center field and all that. And it was one of those things that I knew existed, but then I got so wrapped up in how gorgeous the park was and the city and everything and, and all this. And it wasn't until my second game there that we're doing a lap of the entire place that I looked and said, oh, yeah, Ralph Connor's hands. So that that's my one little tip. If you're going to see a road game and you don't, you know, if you're not flying across the country, uh, PNC is amazing and... I would tie those two things together and and make sure to see Ralph's hands and his bat. That's you know I haven't seen that. I've only been there once um, and didn't catch it. And I read about Wrigley in the book because to me that was just a ter- terrific experience. Mostly because I found Cubs fans to be the complete opposite of Mets fans. Uh, Mets fans being completely consumed with the team and you know almost self-deprecating to an extent about the experience of being a Mets fan. Right. Uh, for most most seasons, whereas Cubs fans are just far more interested in being Cubs fans than they are with what is going on on field. Um, and so it was, a, it was an interesting experience for me uh, going there and just seeing all these people just loving the fact that they were, were, you know, were Cubs fans and like before the game and after the game and completely almost oblivious to what was happening with the score. Um, not the experience that I, <laughs> I know uh, going to <laughs> Shea Stadium and City Field. So. Um, I read a lot about that. And then obviously Yankee Stadium just because of the, the rivalry. And, 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 and again, it's another interesting experience because the rivalry among fans is far greater than the one on field. Um, and so that makes that experience also kind of fun. Um, but the PNC parking, that's pretty cool. I never I only went once. I never and I didn't catch that. So I'm gonna have to go and check that out. All right. There we go. <laughs> um, but yeah, again, thanks for. Thanks for coming on. And again, the book is the uh, the New York Mets fans bucket list. I assume it's available at all the uh, typical places. Any, any... Ab- absolutely, you can go to matthewstrone.com slash Mets book. You can find the info there, and yeah, obviously Amazon, and hopefully everywhere else. So, thanks for having me on, Chris. I appreciate it. Well, Chris, this has not been the most eventful week in Mets history. In fact, it's been pretty far from it. But we do have about a week's worth of uh, looks at Ahmed Rosario in the major leagues. Um, overall, what was your impression of his first week in the majors? The things we've heard about his defense are real. Uh, I think that was the biggest takeaway that I had. You know, he he had the unfortunate circumstances in his first game in the majors where, you know, he was assigned on that pitch to cover second base and, you know, had that very awkward looking, he broke for the bag when the ball was hit and then had to go back and had a tip off his glove. And, you know, with Hansel Robles on the mound, that was pretty much all that you needed to do in the Mets to, uh, to lose that game. <laughs> yep. But, uh, you know, I think that was exactly what it looked like. And, you know, his manager, his teammates backed him up uh pretty much immediately after the game that you know he hadn't done anything wrong there uh you just proved to be human on a sort of unique play uh usually i believe it was a right-handed hitter so usually the second baseman would be covering right <clears throat> so yeah that happened uh but he made a few other good plays in that game and since then he's made a few that it's just man it's nice to have a shortstop Yep. Playing shortstop. <laughs> um, you know, he, he made that ridiculous play uh, in, in this afternoon, the Wednesday afternoon game. Uh, you know, the Mets lost the game, but he made the ridiculous play behind the bag. That was really good to see. Uh, I went to the game on Tuesday night, and, you know, it was pretty routine. I 
guess the majority of st- shortstops uh, in Major League Baseball would make this play. But he had a charge of ball that was hit somewhat slowly and came in on, on it really hard and scooped it up, fired first, and it was a close play, but he, he, he threw the guy out. And that's been really exciting to me. Um, that and his speed, you know, stat cast. He's hit two triples and doesn't have that many other hits, but uh, I think one of them clocked him at 11 point something, four, five, six, somewhere in that range uh, from home plate to third base, and that's really fast. Uh, faster than advertised. You know, his speed was not something, you know, I think you might have this stereotype of a shortstop being fast, Um as a baseball fan and that's fine but it wasn't something that was like highlighted when he was a prospect right right so those are the the big positives for me obviously you know when we touched on the fact that he was coming up last week uh i said i wanted to see him hold his own at the plate it's a week the stat line isn't fantastic uh that's fine you know i I still just want to see him hold his own and he's got a few weeks left uh, more than a few weeks left in this season to to do that. Sadly, he has plenty of time. Ah, <laughs> uh, that sums it up, doesn't it? Yeah. No, I, I think your assessment is uh, pretty much spot on. You know, he's looked great defensively. He's looked really, really comfortable. He's looked confident. You know, everything you could want from a shortstop, he has been. And man, is that a glorious thing to have after a couple of seasons of. Uh, Wilmer, and then uh, Drubal. You know, again, like not the world's worst shortstops, but certainly not the best. Um, you, know, you and I are old enough to remember Ray Ordonez playing for the Mets. Oh yeah, and I don't think that Rosario is necessarily going to be Ray Ordonez with the glove, but hopefully he's also not going to be Ray Ordonez with the bat. <laughs> so yeah, you know, I, I just think having a guy who can make most of the routine plays who can flash some really nice leather every now and then and can, like you said, hold their own at the plate, that's a damn valuable major leaguer. And that's yeah. something Mets have not had in a long time at shortstop. So that's great. And I think we can we can sort of redefine what a routine play is now. Absolutely. Yeah, that's actually a huge <laughs> thing to say uh, because, you know, uh, <laughs> it's like every, both with Cabrera and with Flores – there's been the caveat of, you know, he's fine going to his right. Or if it's hit to him, he has good hands. Now you can remove all those caveats and just say, no, Rosario's a good shortstop. Yeah, and, and I think Cabrera's defense was pretty decent in 2015. Yeah. Um, or, or, sorry, uh, 2016. Uh, you know, less so this year. I think it may get hated on a little bit too much, but it is worlds apart from yeah. where Rosario is. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I think the other thing that's been nice to see is that, you know, obviously you don't you don't see veteran players too often being openly dicks about things to, to rookies, but it seems like the team has really embraced him. And yeah. it's, it, it's nice to see him being... Uh, so embraced by his teammates and, you know, so, um, I don't even know what the word I'm looking for is just, uh, he just seems like everybody there recognizes his importance and people are trying to make him feel comfortable. He's not being branded as the savior of the franchise. And we'll get to that in a second. Um, you know, thankfully he's not being branded as that. 
I, I think overall it's not a perfect first week of, professional, of Major League Baseball, but it's certainly far from the worst first week of Major League Baseball. Yeah. Yeah, he, he's doing enough right. I mean, the, the strikeouts have been a little bit high, and, you know, obviously I, the everything in the slash line isn't great so far. But, but yeah, it's He's also it's real totally young. Fine. You know, oh, yeah. And, uh, you know... I, I I think people forget, and I I sound like uh, Joe Morgan when I say this, so I apologize. But I think people I think people forget about the human element of baseball sometimes, specifically for a young player. Like you know, this is this is a big deal for him. You know, he's living now in the biggest city in the world. He's playing for a team that gets watched by millions of people with guys that he grew up watching. You know, it's it there. There's a lot to take in there. That that stops becoming an excuse next season or even in a couple of weeks. But the first week or two of Major League Baseball, I cannot imagine the emotional roller coaster that must be for a young player. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, you know, especially for a guy who has that much hype around him, you know, and he seems very comfortable with it, but it's just... I, I can't imagine it, you know? Yeah. And uh, I wish I could. <laughs> and it, it has been good to see them embrace him, you know? There's got to be some threatening aspect for every infielder on the team uh, that, hey, this guy has a chance to be better than any of us are right now anyway, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, he has a chance to be better than Jose Reyes ever was, which is, you know, Reyes, I think in his prime, certainly in his first go-around with the Mets, was a legitimately uh, very good to great player. Never the best shortstop in the game, but pretty damn good. Yeah. The combination of speed and, uh, and you know, hitting power. I mean, hit, his hit tool, you know, he, he always flashed a little bit of power, and he was a good, if not great, shortstop. You know, he was a special player. And I think that... Uh, Rosario has – he's not going to be a carbon copy of Reyes, but I think he has the potential to be a similar type of impact player in his own way. Right. Um, is there anything in particular, aside from just holding his own, that you want to see from Rosario in the next six weeks or so? Uh, only because the strikeout rate has been high in the first week. I'd just like to see that come down. Um, again – we're in extremely small sample size waters right now. <laughs> but, you know, I, I don't want him to finish this season with a 40% K rate. Right. Um, but I don't think he will. But, uh, you know, if we're looking for specifics, I would, I'd like to see that come down a little bit. And um, has he taken a walk yet? He is not. Again, it's a week. Not Nowhere near the end of the world. Right. But just see him settle in and all that. You know, he is not a guy who walked a ton in the minors. He he didn't strike out a ton either, generally speaking. So I think just getting him a little bit closer to those norms that he had established and, yeah, finishing somewhere around league average. And, you know, it's funny. This early in anybody's stat line, two good games – I think yeah, exactly. during the game that he hit one of the triples, his his uh, he had started the day 
weighted runs created plus, I think, was around 70 or something, right? He triples and went up to 149. <laughs> uh, things can change very, very quickly. Uh, and I've heard people make references to fans questioning him, getting on him a little. I haven't really seen too much of that firsthand. Um, I don't think anybody who listens to this podcast would be in that group. But, you know, if you're at a game and you hear somebody getting on Rosario uh, hmm. and you feel like, you know, injecting uh, a little bit of sense into the situation. <laughs> feel you know, free to. The person, yeah, he's 21. It's been a week or two weeks by the time they're home yeah. again. You know, what let's, were let's, you doing when you were 21? <laughs> uh, I, well, I graduated college. I was not playing baseball yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for several years before that either. But yeah, but yes, yeah. I know that wasn't actually a question. No, I, I know, I know. <laughs> uh, my big thing for him is, and I don't know how he can do this. This is sort of a, an amorphous goal. I want him to play well enough that if Terry Collins is managing the Mets next year, he doesn't have to say shit in spring training like, well, we still have to see more from Rosario. He still has to prove himself. Because that's that's the classic Terry Collins thing for any young player. You know, Collins wants you to be born as a 32-year-old baseball player. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I but just... I, I'll say one thing in Collins' defense. What's that? He didn't build the roster that had that many outfielders on it coming into this season. I'm not even talking about this season in particular. No, no, I know. But in terms of young guys who, like, it, it's Conforto and Rosario are the the young quarter, cornerstones of this team. Um, uh, the Dom Smith somewhere is wagging his finger at you. I know. I, I, hey, let's, <laughs> hope, let's hope Jeff is wrong. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I'm not so sure that Jeff will be wrong. No, I, um, I'm fairly confident Jeff's going to be right about this. But uh... Right, yeah, no, I, I worry uh, that he will be. But... <clears throat> As a Mets fan, I, I hope he's very wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but, yeah, I, I just hope that he plays well enough that Collins doesn't have to – like, you know, I can just see this being the excuse for Jose Reyes starting opening day next year. They bring him back on, on a, a contract, and he starts <laughs> opening day. And Collins, I don't want him back. I don't want him back at all. But, <laughs> but you, you could just hear Collins saying, you know, look, it's, it's opening day. It's a lot of pressure. We don't want to put that on the kid. Jose's been here before. He can handle it. I don't want to hear any of that. I want Rosario to just play well enough that we never have to hear that again from Collins about about him. All right, fair enough. Shall we uh, get to the email on yes. on, the, on this topic? Yes, we should. And uh, for everyone listening, please send us emails podcast at amazingavenueaudio dot com. Even though the season is is tumbling to uh, disaster, our podcast is not, and we can still use your emails. We will take. I don't want to encourage too strongly, but we will take non-mens related emails oh, sure. if it comes to that. You know, sure. you know what we're into. We like music. Yeah, I'm smoking other, a, rack, a rack of ribs tomorrow. We can talk about that next week. Yeah. Oh, we should get Ted back on. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure Ted will be up for a ribs discussion. So. <laughs> All right. So here, here we go. Uh, this is from our friend Matt. Uh, okay, it's heretic time again. I understand that you are raising a toast for the Med Rosario promotion. I still disagree with it because of the impatience of the New York fans. If Rosario does well, then they'll say, "See, I told you they shouldn't have brought him up. So they should have brought him up sooner." That's my best New York dumb fan impression. Um, nice. If he does poorly, then they'll just say he's a bust, just like all the rest of them. If he plays mad, they'll say, "What's going on? This guy's supposed to be the end all be all." 
Now, uh, <laughs> will they say that normally? Yeah, but with September call-ups, there's a lesser chance of that. Now, they'll still say it anyway, but still, uh, the hope is to lessen the amount of pressure applied to him by the New York fans and media. Bottom line, I simply want to see him have a successful and very long career as a New York Met. I want to lessen any undue pressure on him as necessary for solid and continued development as a player and a person. Especially, this is important, in the meat grinder that is New York sports. Well, I don't think we disagree with any of that in the broad strokes, do we, Chris? Uh, no. No, I think those assessments of the reaction of some fans to all of those outcomes are completely accurate. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Uh, um, go ahead. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm excited for it. Uh, you know, it's, it's something that I, I don't think, I don't think Ahmed Rosario cares about those things. And I think he cares very much about what he does and his first impression. And he seems to have really tried to embrace the whole, you know, fan player relationship. Um, Writing that open players. letter to the fans, it was a classy move. Oh, yeah. And, like, the, I don't even know who reacted negatively to that, but p- some people did. Uh, stupid people? I, I heard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, you know, you have younger players who had, you know, you know how old was he when social media became, like, completely commonplace? 11? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> I feel like 2007, most of it was pretty well established, but certainly by the time he was 14, it was all out there. So I think, you know, he can approach it very differently. And even though Syndergaard has sort of had, that's been his avenue to, you know, to have that relationship with fans and everything. Um, so I, I think Rosario is very into all that, but he just doesn't seem like the kind of guy who's going to be too caught up in you know the reactions to things and what he does and all that and you know for the most part the players can't hear you from the stands so even if people are getting on him a little bit unless the whole stadium boos which please Mets fans can we be better than that yeah um you know I I I think he'll be all right and I think you know there's, there's sort of this and Sandy Alderson alluded to it a few times over the course of the summer uh, not wanting him to feel like he's the save, savior or needs to be the savior, that kind of thing. I, when you have that much weight uh, in prospect rankings and your scouting reports are all great, the expectations are going to be high no matter when you come up. You know, I, I don't think anybody, and I'm I'm fine with when he got called up. I would have preferred that it was sooner. Uh, I don't think calling him up sooner would have saved the season by any means. The the big problems have nothing to do with the position that he plays. Um, man, I, I'm like echoing Alderson's argument that I didn't like from three months ago. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I agree with all that. I, I do. I um, you know, I, I think at this point in the season, it's very strategic. The Mets are out of it. If Rosario comes up and does poorly – no one is going to put one iota of blame on him. If they suddenly get hot, maybe he gets a little credit for that. Regardless, maybe a few more people like you and me go out to the ballpark more frequently because we get a chance to see an exciting young player. Instead of seeing, you know, in years past, it would have been Eric Campbell 
playing uh, third base and Reyes playing shortstop and other horrific, god-awful combinations. So the fact that we can go to the ballpark and see a really good shortstop, that that might be enough reason to get some fans out to some games. So I understand why why they waited until now to do it. You know, I, I think Matt brings up some very, very solid points. I, I just hope that at this point in the season, with things already sort of on the on the downward spiral for the team, it can't hurt that much. Yeah. Unless he comes out and he's hitting, you know, absolutely nothing at all, and he's, you know, goofing on every ball hit to him, I don't really see this as being too big of a deal. Yeah, totally agree. And let's hope he's awesome. Yeah. Let's hope that when we get together with the Mason Avenue fans in, uh, in September at the ballpark, which I'm announcing, I guess we didn't even talk about it yet, but <laughs> let's make yeah. it happen. And yeah, uh, yeah, we're gonna we'll we'll uh, we'll keep reminding everybody. Have we picked a day? We have not yet. We should do that after the show. Okay, maybe you don't want them to. Maybe we don't want to go through that right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably not. Uh, it's probably not the most exciting thing to uh, to discuss on, on air. But you know, when we all get together for a game in September, it will be nice to to watch Rosario play. So. Let's uh, let's all just stay positive, folks. Let's let's hold steady this, and uh, yeah, that's uh, that's my position on this. All yeah. right, Chris. Well, th- there is something very important happening this weekend. Uh, there is. This is uh, Major League Baseball is taking a page from the XFL and is allowing players to have their nicknames on the back of their jerseys for this weekend's games. Uh, before we get into specifics, what do you think of this as a uh, as a promotion? Uh, I, I love it. Um, you get players expressing some uh, you know individual style and sense of humor and all that, and uh, or or the lack thereof. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> I will say of all the things that were put out <clears throat> for the Mets, um, none of them used just their last like none of them were like nope i'm not doing it george springer as an example the back of his jersey says springer which is a little disappointing because you're like hey this is a relatively young right yeah you know star player brian mccann says mccann and i would have expected absolutely nothing different from him (laughs) right yeah i'm surprised this doesn't say brian mccann comma catcher or something (laughs) so yeah um I'm into it. I, I, I like mixing it up a little bit. And to me, this is much better than many of the other uniform variations that the, the league does. You know, this is it, – it's meant to showcase the players' personalities a little bit, I think. And it's it's just fun and lighthearted. And, you know, I think that's something that I come back to a lot. Baseball is a serious business, and there's a lot of money that flows through it and everything and, and all that. But in the grand scheme of things, it's still a sport. And, you know, you don't have to uh, adhere to every single norm from, you know, 100 Jeez. years ago uh, on, on a daily basis. There's 162 games. The Mets will have worn their primary uniforms for the vast majority of them, you know. Uh, so this is, it's fun and they're going to sell some shirts and jerseys off of it too, which is, you know, I'm sure a nice bonus for them. Yeah. Uh, are they selling all of them? Um, 
I don't know about all, but I did, I took a quick glance and there's quite a few. I want a goopy. Yeah. All right. So let's let's get into the Mets then. All right. So so <laughs> I have I have organized it into three categories. Okay. Okay. There, yeah. There's the nicknames that are in Spanish, which you know I can appreciate the translations of them, but I'm sure are different for native Spanish speakers. You know, um, something like, you know, I, I don't think anyone's surprised that Reyes is, says uh, uh, La Malaza, which is, you know, his Twitter handle. And, uh, you know, it's something he's been going along with for quite some time. Right. Um, or that Cespedes is La Potencia. You know, those are those are pretty expected. Um, then there's, there's a category that and I think you kind of have to be of a certain age to get this. I, I know you'll understand what I'm saying. The... Uh, the George W. Bush style nickname of like, right. you know, just, just adding E at the end of it or, you know, dropping the last syllable. So Walker, walkie, uh, Fernando Salas, Fernie. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wheeler, that, that's wheels. That's like the hockey nickname. Exactly, yeah. Harvey, yeah. Harv, you know, just, I mean, just, just, just really boring, really lame nicknames. Can I, but the most, the most boring and lame one of all the Mets is Jake. Yeah, Jacob Degrom. Shame on you, Jacob Degrom. There's so much to work with. Yeah, like he should have just made himself the hair. Right. Yeah. Right. Or or uh, well, that's the best one I've got. So let's stick with the hair. <laughs> Whatever that character's name is is from Days and Confused. Yes. You know. Yeah. Like there's he, there's plenty of room to play, and you know what? For like California guy, long hair, one of the best pitchers in the in the league on the planet right now. I don't know. A little disappointing. Yeah. Um, you know, David Wright, D-Dub. Yeah, that's, that's pretty lame, too. Um, but but then there are there there are some golden ones, and there, there are eight that I have identified as the best. Now, one of them is Syndergaard's Thor. That's not creative for this, but he's one of the few players in baseball that has a legitimate nickname that fans of not just his team know him as. Yes. Everybody knows him as Thor. That's a good nickname, and even though it's not creative for this, I think that deserves a spot on the uh, on the list here. Um, yeah, I mentioned before that Eric Adele's, as long as it's not a misprint, is Goopy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a good nickname. That's weird. Uh, it's it's a little bit uh, uncomfortable sounding. <laughs> you know, that's good. Um, this one's a little bit pedestrian. But I, I like that it sounds like a rapper's name, and that's Travis Darno's Lil D. Yes, uh, you know it's again it's a it's a little pedestrian, but but he he has a little D in the front of his name, and it sounds like a rap name. It's great. Uh, yeah, and he's the guy who's played a lot of hip hop as his walk up music. Over right, the so years. It, so it, it feels authentic to him. Exactly. Um, yeah. All right. There's there's a couple here that I don't really understand. Uh, I don't know why Steven Matz is Reno. Yeah, what did he like? What was his AAA experience like? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> or is he like the poor man's? Is is he the poor man's somebody else? The way Reno is the poor man's Las Vegas. Could be. See, I like that one though. That that's like, that's hey, a, that's that, there's something there. Right. What is that? Exactly. I don't understand it, but I like it. Uh, similarly to that, I presume it's just because of the beard. But Josh Smoker as Brown Bear, yeah, that that <laughs> that's pretty good. I appreciate that. To me, that sounds like his CB handle. <laughs> you know, like, uh, <laughs> he's a trucker and he's 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 uh, 
this is brown bear calling out to all the people on the you know citizens band or whatever um right. we get tj rivera's tea butter yeah uh, again don't really b-u-t-t-a b-u-t-t-a yeah um that's so, uh, solid it's, uh, again uh, that that's a little bit of a, of a college fraternity nickname mm-hmm. uh, but you know given what given what what his teammates are doing i can respect that um I, i've saved my favorite two for last year the first is michael conforto being scooter again I, i've never yep. heard him called scooter elsewhere have you that's not a thing is it uh, I think it may be. I don't, I don't think I haven't heard it a ton, but I had heard it before I saw this. Okay, okay, I like that. I, that doesn't bother me. I like that. Scooter Conforto, I'm down with that. That works fine. <laughs> but the best one, and it shouldn't surprise anybody, that the best nickname belongs to Jerry Blevins. Yep, and that's Gordo, which means fat in Spanish. <laughs> And he is this skinny little thing. Uh, it's great. It's fantastic. Yeah. God yeah, bless no, Jerry he, Blevins. He is, um, I think, I'm 6'2". He makes me look short. <laughs> yeah. Particularly because he probably weighs, like, 50 pounds less than I do. <laughs> and you're not, you're not a huge guy either, you know, so... Uh, Right. Oh, yeah. No, like, that, you know, he's, I, let's see. Now I'm curious. What does it say he weighs? On, and who knows the last time this was updated? So, okay. He's listed at 6'6, 190. <laughs> There's no way he's 190. Right. Yeah. Well, that, that seems high. And, and just for context, uh, yeah. I, I, I guess he's more like 180. DeGrom is also like, weighs nothing considering his height. Yeah, exactly. Um, we can get into just a height and weight discussion if we want. <laughs> it's going to be a long rest of the season, Chris. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's save this gold for another week if we uh, if we need yes. to. But yeah, Gordo, great nickname. I mean, really, really high quality. I'd expect nothing less from Jerry Blevins. But, you know, good for him. Um, did I forget any that you're particularly fond of? Um... No, so Wilmer Flores, right? Yes. Is that uh, forgive my lack of bilingual ability here? Mm-hmm. But is that two words? You know, it, it's it's styled like that. But I looked it up, and it appears that that is a well-known nickname for him as one word, which ah. it, it means blondie. Ah, it, it means blonde. So uh, apparently, that's a nickname of his. For a while, so that's that, that's a good nickname. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. I, I, let's see. I was Anybody hoping. Else? Would, I was hoping his would be Chandler or some other friend's character. Yeah, yeah, that that would have been good. I also similarly, Bruce. I appreciate the triple U, Bruce. Yeah. Um, and I'm, you know, maybe he didn't want to go too much with baseball writer on it, but he could have also just gone with like the boss. Right. Yeah. To, uh, you know, it, I, I like uh, a reference to a thing that everybody would get that isn't just the thing spelled out. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, but whatever, that's fine. He, he, that That's uh, – one of my favorites was former Met Lucas Duda who just did Dude. Right. So that's perfect. That's, that's it, perfect it, for him. It's the most Lucas Duda thing. It is. Um, what I was going to say is – All of the Rays, but 
I'd love if like three of them did. We follow Lucas, <laughs> and then somebody else who wasn't Duda wore the name Duda. Duda. That'd be great. Yeah. Um, what I was going to say is, uh, I instantly disqualify Curtis Granderson's because it was given to him by John Sterling. Fair enough. Even though the Grandy Man has sort of become a, a pretty common nickname for him. But that started as a John Sterling. I think it started as a Sterling thing, right? Yeah, I, I believe he coined it. Yeah. Um, one other disappointing one to me, uh, Wheeler's Wheels. Yeah. He should have just done Colt 45 just for the reference to the former franchise name of the Astros. That is true. Or, you know... The booze. Right. <laughs> Whatever you want. Zach Wheeler should have put Colts on the back of his jersey, is yeah. my point here. Yeah. I, I feel like Neil Walker being a walkie is really the uh, the bottom of the barrel. Yeah? I don't know. I don't, Jake is my least favorite, Jake, Jake, I'm sorry. Jake is the worst. Um, right. <laughs> but but walkie is pretty, pretty low, too. Even yeah. if he was talky. <laughs> like that's way better that's way better well we can give him that he grew up in pittsburgh which after going there i'm very well aware uh you know and it, it's like hockey wise honorary canadian right right yeah so it's a it's a very hockey nickname it is i mean but, you know. screw his favorite hockey team but <laughs> Oh come on! Uh, I think uh, no matter they met, they may hate the Rangers, but I think all of us who are in this universe can band together in hating the Penguins. <laughs> I feel like you can't get mad at somebody for rooting for their hometown team. No, no, no! It's it's, it's fine, totally fine. The, it's it's terrible if you're not from Pittsburgh and you and you care about them. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I did. I don't hold it against Neil Walker. Okay. I just hope his hockey team loses. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I guess to end the segment, Chris, what would be your nickname if you were if you were like a Mets? You know, you're, you're the Mets third base coach. What's your what, what's your back here jersey say? Oh, uh, I mean, I think I'd put Green Ricky on there just to <laughs> just, just to, to troll mess with Steve. Steve. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't actually thought of one for myself. Well, Let what's me your think nickname? for a second. Uh, my, what's my nickname? Yeah, do you have do you have like a uh, you know a, a childhood or college nickname that you could uh, fall back on for this? I, I, I'm gonna pull a Degrom here, but <laughs> Chris. No, it's pretty much just McShane. Like uh, okay. people, it's it's a last name that lends itself to people saying, "Hey, McShane." Yeah, I can see that. Right. Oh yeah. Like when we were doing improv in college, like McShane. You know, people love to really get into saying it and all that. Um, I think I'd add an exclamation point to my last name. Okay, that's kind of fun. Or maybe I'd pull a Bruce, who I just ah, criticized for doing exactly this, <laughs> and put like four A's in there and an exclamation point at the end. Right. Um. Yeah, yeah, I, I, that that's the best I've got at the moment. Uh, what about you? Well, m- one of my friends from high school, for reasons I still don't really understand, uh-huh. started calling me Busta, as in Busta Rhymes. <laughs> but like, I'm not particularly a Busta Rhymes fan. But she just started calling me Busta, and my one, a couple of my friends still refer to me as Busta today. So I guess I go with Busta. 
It's okay. again, again, it's not great, but it's it's authentic to me. And uh, you know, I hate Sal. That's, when people call me Sal, it's one of my least favorite things in the world. So I feel uh, like I wouldn't go with Sal. Just I go with anything so that they wouldn't instantly go with Sal. Okay. Yeah. Hey, that works. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I ever had another nickname. Actually. Oh, yeah. when, when I was a, when I was a kid, this actually is reflected in my email address. When my dad used to play um, Elks softball. Uh-huh. Actually, with former Cy Young Award winning pitcher Sparky Lyle, was on his Elks softball team. Nice. Um, he wouldn't pitch. He refused to pitch, but he would he would bat. And there was a guy who he played with who called me Bunga. I have no idea what that word means. But he called me Bunga. So when I was a kid, people just called me Bunga. And so maybe Bunga. Yeah, that, that's better. That's better than Busta. It, it, it eliminates any cultural appropriation that might be associated with uh, <laughs> with taking the name Busta. Uh, <laughs> you know, so yeah, there we go. I was going to suggest one for you. What's that? Uh, I need a nap. <laughs> oh, that, that works too. Yeah. Yeah, just pulling from the Twitter handle. Let's go from the Twitter handle. That works. Yeah, absolutely. Or you could just do at Brian needs a nap. <laughs> Actually, I'm I'm a little surprised no player put uh, a handle on there. I mean, to be fair, that's uh, if you take Reyes's and read it with the number, isn't that his Twitter handle? Yeah, it'd be great if he just like drew the at symbol in front of. I wonder if they were specifically told not to do that because that's good branding. You're right. Yeah, yeah, I bet they were. I bet they had a rule of like no explicit uh, reference to. Your, any of your social media accounts. That's too bad, because that would have been fun. Yeah. I, hey, I, 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 my dream, I said, was the We Follow Lucas Duda. <laughs> yeah. Although, to be fair, does any baseball player have a good Twitter handle? Um, oh, yeah. One, uh, I, there, there is, but I can't think of who it is. Okay, let me rephrase the question. Do three baseball players have good Twitter handles? No, probably not. <laughs> so yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, uh, this is gonna kill me. It, 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 I don't have to figure it out right now, but now <laughs> I'm I'm going to rack my brain for the rest of the night to figure out who had the good Twitter handle in baseball that I saw. Um, I feel like the problem with with being a professional athlete and having a Twitter handle is that you have to make it so innocuous that nobody could possibly be offended by it. Right. And I feel like if you're trying to go with funny, funny inherently has some sort of, uh, you know, it's the, the potential for being misunderstood or misconstrued. So right. you wind up as having your name. Yeah. So, all right. Well, uh, the next time we talk, hopefully, uh, I'll own a, a, a Goopy jersey, and uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm. Are they selling jerseys or jerseys for these? Uh both. Oh man, if there's a, I will legitimately buy a Goopy jersey, and I don't give a shit about Eric Adele. <laughs> I might even buy a Gordo. To be fair, we'll see. Yeah. As another encounter with the New York Yankees approaches, here's a look at the top five Subway Series games in which the Mets prevailed. At number five, it's July 3rd, 2011 at Citi Field. Mariano Rivera was as much of an automatic 
as any closer in baseball history. So on the extremely rare occasion he couldn't add to what would turn out to be a record-setting 652 saves, it was more pronounced than anyone else's like failure. Preserving a lead, even as slim as a single run, through the arm of Rivera was akin to a deadbolt lock. Curtis Granderson's eighth-inning sacrifice fly, which put the Yankees up 2-1, to one, dwindled the Mets' chances. When Moe had little trouble getting the first two outs in the bottom of the ninth, his 23rd save in the last 24 save opportunities against the Mets appeared imminent. Then, Jason Bay walked on a 3-2 pitch. Lucas Duda singled. Ronnie Polino singled. Bay scored. Ruben Tejada almost won it with a sharp grounder under shortstop Ramiro Pena's legs, but Brett Gardner's perfect throw nailed Duda at home and kept the game tied, for now. In the 10th, Bay, who had little to rejoice about this year, or any year in which he was a Met, clapped his hands in celebration after a bases-loaded walk-off hit, made possible by another Pena error that prolonged the inning. At number four, it's May 28, 2013, also in Queens. Acting in concert with the other 28 teams, the Mets honored the soon-to-be-retiring and soon-to-be-Cooperstown-bound Mariano Rivera in his farewell season, by having him throw out the honorary first pitch in the City Field Series finale. Rivera also threw the final pitch, but not in the ceremonial fashion he was so used to. The lead-up to a walk-off ending included Matt Harvey's stellar start. The Dark Knight allowed just one run and struck out ten in eight innings of work. Hiroki Kuroda, though, was better, tossing seven shutout innings. The 1-0 Yankee advantage held into the ninth. Rivera came on and was very mortal. Three straight hits by Daniel Murphy, David Wright, and finally Lucas Duda gave the Mets a 2-1 victory. Rivera was at the center of the next game on our list, as was the most famous Met of the past decade and a half. It took place on May 19, 2006, and it's number three on our list. David Wright didn't need a signature moment to certify his rise to stardom, but this night was as good as any to have one. First, though, he and the lineup would need to reel the Yankees in. A microwave-like Mets offense cut into leads of 4-0, 5-3, and 6-5 against Randy Johnson and bailed out their own beleaguered starter, Jeremy Gonzalez. Tied at 6 entering the last of the ninth, Wright entered the picture with two outs. The outfield played shallow to protect against a game-winning single that could score Paul Aduka from second base. Instead, Wright sent a deep drive to center, sending Johnny Damon racing toward the 4-10 mark. Wright hopped up and down, as if body language could influence the ball to go further and land untouched. The leaping prayer, though, was answered. The ball fell on the warning track, just beyond Damon's reach. Perhaps that remains the most significant moment of Wright's career. Now to number two, and game three of the 2000 World Series. The first fall classic between New York teams since 1956 ended relatively one-sided, with the Yankees prevailing in five to win their third straight championship. So close, yet so far, as three of the four Mets' losses were decided by a single run. Most painful in those was the series opener, a 12-inning defeat marred by poor base running and an Armando Benitez blown save. Narrow victories became ingrained in the Yankees' resourceful fabric during the late 1990s, much to our dismay. It seemed they couldn't lose, especially in October. And to some extent, that was an affirmative statement. 
Equally invincible was the Yanks' starting pitcher as the teams arrived at Shea with the club from Queens down two games to none. Orlando Hernandez put his 8-0 record in postseason competition on the line against a team that couldn't afford a loss. Making good on their urgency, the Mets broke the ice courtesy of a Robin Ventura home run, only to see the practical Yankees string together two. Todd Zeal hit a double to drive home Piazza for a sixth-inning tie, and was about to be in the picture again as the bottom of the eighth commenced, with El Duque on the mound and more than 120 pitches deep. Increasing his series average to 462, Zeal singled with one out in front of Benny Agbayani. A double in the gap would score the average base runner. But Zeal had a need for speed. As Benny laced a liner into the space between left and center field, Todd plodded around the bases aiming to complete this 270-yard dash. But all he had to do was beat the relay home. And he did. The Mets tacked on another run, won 4-2, and halted the Yankees' streak of 14 straight victories in the Fall Classic. Hopes of an extended series were restored. They would not be prolonged. The Yankee dynasty of the late 90s and early 2000s completely overshadowed the winning ways of the Mets during that same time. So when the Amazons were able to get the best of their crosstown rival, it was worth celebrating. No much more so than on July 10, 1999, the number one Subway Series victory in Mets history. As we've discussed, the cracks in Mariano Rivera's impenetrable armor are few and far between. The Mets overcame the dominant closer, but first they had to overcome six Bronx Bomber bombs. The good guys had just one, but it was a mammoth one, a Mike Piazza blast that was the longest of the season. But it still wasn't enough to get ahead for good. Jorge Posada's two-run homer put the Yanks up 8-7 to seven in the eighth. That only set the stage for a fantastic finish in the bottom of the ninth. A walk, a double, and an intentional walk left the bases loaded with two outs. Rivera faced pinch hitter Matt Franco and got ahead in the count. It was the perfect setup for a game-ending strikeout. Instead, Franco made contact, placing a single between first and second. Paul O'Neill's throw reached home after both Ricky Henderson and Edgardo Alfonso had crossed the plate to guarantee the Mets' first series triumph over the evil empire. That's all for this list. I'm Brian Wright. You can follow me on Twitter at BrianWright86. Hey everybody, this is Steve Saipa, and I'm back to go over our minor league players of the week for week 18. So the Las Vegas 51s went 4-2, and that gives them a winless record of 43-70, and putting them 15 games behind the Salt Lake Bees for first place in the PCL Pacific Southern Division. Binghamton Rumble Ponies also went 4-2, and and that puts them at a much better 63-46, and but that's still 10 games behind the Trenton Thunder for first place. The St. Lucie Mets went 4-2, and and are 17-25 and in the second half, which puts them 9 games behind the Fort Myer Miracle for first place in the FSL. The Columbia Fireflies went 1-6, giving them a 16-25 and record in the second half, and that puts them 10 games behind the Charleston River Dogs. The Cyclones went 2-5 this week, which puts them at 12-26, and which is 13 games behind the Aberdeen Ironbirds, who recently went on a big winning streak and are game up on the Staten Island Yankees. The Kingsport Mets went 3-3 and are 18-24, and and finally the GCL Mets are 11-22 and for the year. Our pitcher of the week for this week, week 18, is Jonathan Albaladejo, 
In his one start this week, he pitched eight innings against the Oklahoma City Dodgers, allowing one run on three hits, walking none, and striking out five. So, the Mets plucked Albaladejo basically out of nowhere, and he's been surprisingly effective. In his start before this week, he blanked the Colorado Springs Sky Sox over seven innings, allowing four hits, walking none, and striking out eight, and they're a pretty good team, the Sky Sox. If you told me that a 34-year-old reliever turned starter was going to allow one run in 19-plus innings, giving up a total of 11 hits, zero walks, and 15 strikeouts, I wouldn't have believed it, but yet here we are. He was pitching for the Bridgewater Bluefish before signing with the Mets, and he was fairly effective there as a starting pitcher for the first time in over a decade, and he's been fairly effective with the 51 so far as a starting pitcher, so... I mean, he must have learned something, and whatever that was, it's clicking. But the fact that the Mets had to pluck Albaladejo out of nowhere, that kind of highlights a problem that I touched on last week when I was talking about all those mid-relievers that the Mets got in the trades for Lucas Duda and Addison Reed, and that is pitching depth. Yes, um, the Mets had to tap into some of that pitching depth because of all the injuries that they had to the starting rotation at the major league level this year. But the pitching depth coming into the year at AAA was bad. Like, really, really bad. Um, Reggie Knapp has 23 starts with the 51s. He leads the team. And he's a semi-prospect, so alright. But after him, I mean, the closest thing to a prospect is Tyler Pill, I guess. Maybe Rafael Montero, if you're still kind of holding out hope. But if you look at the breakdown of games started for 51s this year... Wilfredo Buscan has 21. Donovan Hand has 13. There's a, you know, it's the PCL, it's AAA, so we all know there's going to be more major league retreads than actual prospects, but it's having decent pitching depth that's close to major league ready is a problem that the Mets have had since 2014, basically, when the Mets had Syndergaard, Montero, Logan Verrett to a lesser degree, Jacob deGrom for a couple of starts uh, to a lesser degree. It's been a problem, you know, for a couple of years now. I'm not expecting night to turn today suddenly, but it'll be interesting to see how Sandy Olsen addresses the upper minors next year. Basically, since we know that the MLB rotation is talented but injury-prone, and nobody except for Chris Flexen and, I guess, Rafael Montero are in the upper minors to provide spot starts if necessary. It would have been nice to see the Mets uh, get an upper-level starter or two back in those trades. I mean, it would have sweetened the deal a bit. A bunch of mid-relievers that aren't really considered top guys, I felt that's a pretty light return for the likes of Duda and Reed. But at least a starter or two would have made that you know return feel a little more substantial. But we will see, we will see. And now, our hitter of the week... For week 18 is Anthony DeRossi. He went 9 for 23 with 5 doubles, 2 home runs, 11 RBI, 1 walk, and 7 strikeouts. And aside for just the stats, uh, he hit a grand slam to put Kingsport over the Bristol Pirates. And then in the next game, he hit a double to walk off the game. So he had a good week all around. So a little background on DeRossi. Uh, he was signed as an IFA in October 2013. And he played on the Mets' DSL teams in 2014 and 2015, making his stateside debut at the end of 2015 when he was promoted to the GCL Mets. He spent his entire season there 2016, and he's playing in Kingsport this year. 
So the biggest thing of Ed DeRossi is he's got plenty of power. Uh, he's only five foot eleven, 175 pounds, but he makes the most of every pound in his body. He kind of has, quote-unquote, Dilson Herrera power. Um, you know, he's a short guy, but surprisingly strong. Um, his nine home runs, as I record this, are the most on Kingsport, and they're actually second most in the entire Appalachian League. But there's a reason, despite that, that DeRossi is kind of an obscure guy, even among people that pay attention to the system. And the fact is, besides for just being an unheralded international signing and being pretty low in the minor league system, he has a pretty big fatal flaw, and that is he struggles to hit. Uh, his swing is pretty long, it's pretty uppercutty, and he's a big leg kick. So while he definitely gets the most out of it when he connects with the ball, um, it gives him a lot of swing and miss. And more often than not, he's not connecting with the ball. Uh, he leads the Appalachian League in strikeouts with a whopping 60. So with 154 total at-bats to his credit this season, that gets him a strikeout rate just a shade over 36%. Uh, that's a problem. <laughs> If he's going to progress at all in his baseball development, he's going to have to figure out a way to shorten the swing and cut down on the strikeouts without sacrificing the power. Defensively, he's gotten um, a bit better since last year, so you figure if he's been able to improve there, maybe there's some hope that he can improve his swing. At the time, reports were that basically he tracked the ball like a fourth outfielder, you know, like someone that didn't really get that much time out there. This year, reports are that he's playing a much more solid center field. He's tracking the balls better, he takes better routes, and that means that he has more time to adjust for whatever reason if he needs to, and that means he's more likely to, he's less likely to misplay balls. Um, adding to his defensive profile is the fact that his arm and his speed are both above average. So the tools are there, and if he can just kind of improve on his tracking skills, there's the hope that he could possibly play a pretty good center field. So those are our minor league players of the week for week 18. I'm Steve Seiper, and I'll talk with everyone next week. We're going to rename this segment from Panic City Meter to just the eh, who cares? Because once again, I'm here to tell you that nothing that happens for the rest of the season matters. Super depressing, super fun, it's all good. That's why you're all Mets fans. I think right now, the biggest issue is Ahmed Rosario chasing a lot of pitches out of the strike zone. Sure, fine, we knew he was going to do that. That's fine, it's okay. If he's still doing it in May, we'll talk, but for now... The whole point is for him to come up and learn when it doesn't matter. Which is what, in theory, technically, he's probably hopefully doing. Dom Smith's supposed to be up at some point this month. Sandy Alderson was vague as always, which is what we know and love or something him for. But they're still, you know, trying to trade off their pieces in the waiver deadline. It's fine. None of this matters.
Well, folks, that does it for another installment of Amazing Avenue Audio. Thank you so much for listening. And big special thanks this week for to uh, Steve Saipa for pulling double duty on the podcast and doing his usual segment as well as a little bit about the newest Met farmhand. So thank you, Steve. Uh, you can go to AmazingAvenue.com for this and more breaking news for analysis, news, uh, game recaps, fun stuff, anything you want. It's all at AmazingAvenue.com. You can also find Amazing my bet my son Ben wants to get an advertisement for something here. I'm not sure what it is. So uh take the you know, think about what an eighteen month old would want to tell you about. Just imagine he just shouted that. Um you can also find Amazing Avenue on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Amazing Avenue. You can find the show at blogtalkradio.com where you can download it directly, or you can subscribe through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice. Uh while you're at it, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show in those places specifically apple podcasts the reviews really do help so uh yes thank you in advance you can email the show podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com we love your emails as chris and i said earlier on the show it doesn't even have to be mets related this time of year it can be you know whatever what's that ben that can't be that interesting don't worry and uh last but not least you can follow all of us on twitter i am at brian Intonap, chris is at chris mcshane steve is at steve saipa kate is at kate e feldman and brian wright is at brian wright 86 so by this time next week there may be even less uh mets than we think uh, that's not true there'll be the same number of mets there'll be uh maybe we'll lose more players via trade is what i'm trying to say and uh, that's okay, because the season's over for the Mets, and they might as well get some prospects back, even if this prospect is not exactly the uh, kind of all-star you hope to get back for a player uh, at any time during the year. Uh, although, you know, I think the expectations are a bit less during this waiver trade deadline. But still, you know what I'm saying, guys. I'm rambling. My son needs me. Let me go. So until next time, let's go Mets.